Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Uh, Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics uh, of interest to leaders and uh, a number of other professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. I'm excited today. We have uh, someone um, who is joining in uh, live. Uh, I advertised that I have to disclose something uh, very important. I advertised that uh, the gentleman that I'm going to be talking to today was calling in live from London. So I have to tell you something before I tell you who he is. And so when I when I said uh, to him, I said, "Okay, so you're in London right now," and he and he said, well, no, I'm not in London today. I'm in uh, Venice. <laughs> and so I told him I was going to tell my audience on him that he is um, calling in from Venice, Italy, and we are very jealous. Uh, I know collectively uh, jealous to hear that, but happy that someone is able to uh, enjoy that beautiful city. And so today we have author, uh, celebrated author and award-winning author um, with us today. Um, and I'm very uh, happy to introduce to you um, Giulio Boccoletti. So Giulio, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Um, and uh, Giulio, I, you know, as I told you, I'm sure, and I, and I promised everyone I'm not going to uh, spend a lot of time talking, but I, I have to acknowledge that uh, this this book has received so many accolades, and I've, I understand why, um, having uh, not finished, but uh, uh, having spent some time with it now, Water, a Biography, uh, just the title caught my attention initially, and I heard um, and read some of the things that you've written. Um, Julio is recognized as uh, one of the uh, young global leaders uh, by the World Economic Forum. He has his doctorate from Princeton, has has completed a lot of research, and I think this uh, this book is is one of the um, has been recognized as one of the important books of the 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 decade and i'm just excited that uh, we have a chance to talk to him today so um julio give us just a little background tell me a little bit about yourself um how you a little bit about your your uh dare i say fascination with water but more so uh resource security and environmental sustainability tell me a little bit about yourself Sure, it's a, it's a great pleasure, and indeed, I'm uh, I'm calling from Venice, which is the sort of ultimate water city. So it's a particularly uh, apt uh, conversation that we're having mm-hmm. uh, this evening. Um, so I, you know, I, a bit like you, uh, Brian, I started life as a scientist. I was a physicist first and a, a climate scientist. I studied uh, geophysical fluid dynamics uh, in graduate school, which uh, was the kind of thing that makes people's eyes glaze over. Uh, but in fact, it's about 
you know, atmospheric and oceanic sciences. And I was very passionate about it. But I, at some point as I was uh, working on my research at MIT, actually, I, I, I just felt I wanted to spend time in the so-called real world and, and try and engage the problems that had been, I had been studying uh, more directly, not just write papers about it. And so I you know, I left, uh, I left academia and went first into business uh, for about a decade, and then I was uh, just under a decade of the Nature Conservancy, a large environmental organization. And, and, and what I was trying to do was to try and see whether I could find a way of applying uh, the things that I'd learned as a scientist uh, to real-world problems. Now, my interests as a scientist were the climate system, uh, oceanography, atmospheric science, and, and the likes. But very quickly, I realized, and this is going back now almost two decades, that those, uh, those kind of fields felt fairly abstract to the business leaders and the country leaders that I ended up uh, mm -hmm. working with. But mm -hmm. as soon as I translated the problems as water issues, uh, then suddenly there was a very practical conversation uh, to be had. And, you know, for me, those two are synonyms. Water is simply the agent of the climate system on the landscape. Mm -hmm. You know, we feel mm -hmm. the climate system if we feel scarcity or floods or droughts or storms, right? That's so right. water That's phenomena right. are climate phenomena. But, mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in, in this attempt at applying my interests uh, from climate science, I ended up working on water and then that took me to work both with private sector leaders as well as with country leaders on water security pretty much across the world from South Africa, which I know you know well, to mm -hmm. Ethiopia, to India, Mexico, China, and so forth, so on. And so for the last uh, several years, I've been working on, on water security. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And so, you know, we, we've had on the show before, we had um, uh, someone that talked about uh, the, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, which I'm sure you are very well aware mm -hmm. of. And um, yeah. but so to your to your point that we feel it um, when when we feel it is as if we um, that's when we want to do something about it. Um, I remember years ago before my my kind of transition into leadership, I, I worked in environmental health and um, there were several places around the U.S. and I'm sure it's like that around the world where. Um, you know, our understanding of water um, was very different. And, and I re you know, I remember uh, being trained about how in the early years, nuclear waste, you know, was, was dumped in, in yeah. bar barrels into the bottom of the ocean because out of sight, it was just gone. It didn't, you know, in, in our right. minds. And so, um, also, uh, I've been reading and hearing a little bit about what's also going on right where you are in Venice. And um, so mm -hmm. how real is that? Is that uh, they're saying I've seen articles that have ranged from uh, things saying that it's a vanishing city, um, something, you know, climate change is going to eliminate it. Uh, in addition to a lot of other coastal cities, uh, so how how is yeah. that how is that uh, playing out where you are today? Well, yeah, well, you know, it's I mean, in a way, it's interesting to be in Venice because Venice, of course, is in many ways a threatened uh, city. Now, 
Sometimes people overstate the case. Venice was built to live with water. So the fact mm-hmm. that it floods is sort of um, by design, if you will, right? This is a city mm-hmm. that uh, in some ways shouldn't exist. You know, all the islands right. are sure, in fact sure. artificial islands from the 6th and 7th century. Um, sure. So, you know, it, it's certainly the case that there are, there are water problems here. And indeed, you know, you talked about Flint, Michigan. I think, you know, there are there's sort of various layers of problems in water that we're seeing around the world. Part of them have to do with um, just an equal distribution of resources and an equal distribution of, um, of power in society, if you will. And part of it has to do with the climate system changing. Now, the thing mm-hmm. that I have been particularly interested in in the, last, uh, in the last few years, and one of the reasons, frankly, Brian, that I, I wrote this book, is that it's very easy to end up having a conversation about water that ends up being quite technical and sort of engineering-like. You know, you can have a discussion about water, about, you know, the the pollutants that go in water. You can have a discussion Mm -hmm. about the treatments options that one can have. You can have a discussion about, uh, you know, dams or desalination or how you build pipelines or canals to ameliorate uh, water scarcity. But to me, having traveled the world and worked on these issues for 15, 20 years, the reality is that water issues are political issues. They are Mm -hmm. fundamentally about Mm -hmm. how we collectively manage the landscape um, so that it uh, so that accommodates our life and in a way what venice accomplished over 1500 years is that is a is a political system you know venice is one of the longest lasting republics in history right it lasted Mm -hmm. almost a thousand years and the republican form of government was very much tied to the way in which it used the landscape and and the book Mm -hmm. is is a sort of a it's an expansion of that theme Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I may, Brian, just to, to another point on this is, you sure. know, we human beings have been on the planet for some 300,000 years, right? And homo mm-hmm. sapiens, right? The species we belong to. And for most of that time, we were hunter gatherers, we were nomads. We were sort of part of the ecosystem. If, uh, if a river flooded, we moved out of the way. If uh, there wasn't enough water, we simply moved somewhere else. And then right. 10,000 years ago, we made the fateful decision of standing still in a world of moving water. And what that produced was the need to work together to confront the forces of water on the landscape and organize so that you could you know, protect the community from floods, you could bring water to where you needed it, and so forth and so on. And so, in a way, the shift to sedentism, to being standing still, marked not just the fact that we suddenly started experiencing what a problem it is to be in a landscape with moving water, but also it was the starting point of uh, the institutions of society that we had to build in order to work together to mm-hmm. manage the landscape and water with it. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the story, you know, this is a very complicated relationship between society and water that has very deep historical roots. And that's the story um, that I, that I uh, tried to tell in, mm-hmm. in this book. In fact, mm-hmm. you know, oddly enough, Venice actually plays a small, a small role in this, in this story. Mm-hmm. So read mm-hmm. the book. Sure, sure. And, and there are places, at, thank you for, for uh, clarifying about Venice. Was, that was something I didn't know about Venice, was that it was actually um, created uh, to kind of coexist uh, with, with uh, water. Um, that that was the the purpose well, of the. And, and in fact, mm-hmm. Brian, if I if I may geek out yeah, for a sure. second on this point, sure. you know the 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 wood 
that holds together the islands of Venice is a particular wood from the inland of uh, Veneto, the region uh, just around Venice, called Dontano. And it's a wood that hardens underwater. And so, in fact, the city is, has to be uh, underwater because that's how the foundations of the buildings and the city wow. can last so long, is that wow. the wood that keeps them up underwater becomes very, very hard. If it were exposed to the air, it would actually deteriorate very rapidly. Wow, that's fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. And it actually also makes me wonder how much other cities might learn that are coastal cities that, you know, uh, one such city is, uh, and it comes to mind immediately, is New Orleans, um, where people are talking about it and and other places um, that might learn um, how to, how to, in the future, um, kind of transform who they are. Um, and, and the one thing that I, I recently read a book um, and that's entitled The Beautiful Crescent, and it gave a little background on New Orleans and so the, the whole region. But what it was talking about, just to your same point, is that over time, these areas have been, in some cases, they've been flooded with water, and then the water has receded over tens of thousands of years, right? So it's like it's, it yeah. has not been that way where um, the, the mouth of the Mississippi River stayed nice and neatly where it was. Um, it's not unusual for rivers to change directions and move around, you know, as well, they flow exactly. out. Yeah, and so – Suddenly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly, we think so. <laughs> you know. Well, you know, Brian. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up uh, New Orleans because one of the things that happened in the 20th century is that we constructed a great illusion, and that illusion was that the landscape that we live in and the water system, the hydrology that we're surrounded by, mm-hmm. is essentially fixed and controllable forever. And in a way, the Mississippi is, uh, you know, you'll certainly know of the Chafalaya and the sort of uh, great efforts of the Army Corps of Engineers to hold back the Mississippi from yes, moving yes. to where it would naturally uh, flow. And in order to That's do that, right. we've replumbed the planet, right? We've replumbed the landscape. The Mississippi is a highly, highly engineered system, as is the Colorado. And what's interesting about that is, you know, I don't make particular judgments in the book about whether something is right or wrong, but what I observe is that the relationship with water is a dialectic one, which means that for every step that we take, there is a consequence. There is a step that nature takes in return. In the case of Mississippi, for example, the the, engineering that has delivered stability to New Orleans and the Louisiana coastline and and the mouth of Mississippi for so many years, that engineering has also caused a sediment from stopping mm-hmm. uh, to reach the, the coastline of Louisiana. And as a result, the coastline is losing 45, it's losing a football field of land every 45 minutes because mm-hmm. the sea is eroding it as, um, mm-hmm. as, uh, as the river doesn't replenish it. And so mm-hmm. there are all these, mm-hmm. uh, by the way, you can probably hear uh, bells in the background. That's uh, one of the downsides of being in Venice. I apologize for that. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, it's okay. But the, the, one, of the, one of the things that's interesting here is because it's a dialectic relationship, one of the things that people should learn from Venice, from the history that I describe in the book, and one that is very salient 
to the story of Samuel Lens is that in the end, managing this dynamic relationship is a matter of politics and institutions. In order to do it successfully, you have to have a political system that engages citizens in the decisions about their own home and their own landscape. And that's where mm -hmm. often we fail, mm -hmm. is if the people affected by the water systems are then not able to, um, you know, to provide input in the decisions that alter the landscape. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and as you mentioned, for political reasons and economic reasons, let's not, you know, let's not ignore the, the economics associated with it. Um, I, I, I saw a documentary recently where, and, and this was only talking about the avocado farming. Um, I, I think it was Peru or it may have been, uh, but it was in Central America or South America, but they talked about how um, how much water was required and that they basically dammed off most of the country so that they could produce um, avocado and because there was such a huge demand uh, for That's avocado. Right. And, and so I imagine economics, you've seen a lot of effects uh, because economics, it, quite honestly, uh, is what underlies a lot of the decisions that are made in a place like New Orleans too. Uh, but, but in terms of produ uh, producing um, fruits and vegetables, uh, I'm sure you've probably seen a lot uh, in that area as well. Yeah, well, it, you're right. And, and of course, you know, that is particularly the last part of the book deals with the 20th century. And that's really the story of the 20th century. It's in many ways, it's what I call a hydraulic century, but it's also, you know, the, the first century where economic growth becomes the fundamental driver of policymaking, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and in a way, that's the consequence of um, political enfranchisement. Until you only had a few aristocrats owning essentially everything, they didn't really care all that much about economic growth. But suddenly, mm -hmm. when you have mm -hmm. a lot of people with political power, then you have to grow the pie, right? And that's sure, sure. imperative for economic growth becomes uh, important. And then what, what happened was that people realized that water and the development of water resources, which meant spending money to transform the landscape so that you could catch water when you didn't have any, so that you can deliver it when there wasn't enough, right? Um, right. That, that modification of the landscape was very expensive and required enormous underwriting, first by the state uh, and then, you know, ultimately also by the involvement of the private sector. And so, you know, lots of money got poured into the landscape over the course of the 20th and now 21st century to mm -hmm. transform the water geography to serve economic, uh, economic, uh, economic growth. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, one of the side products of that transformation was uh, this illusion that we had forever vanquished nature, that we had essentially delivered an environment in which, you know, which water is simply the background to our life. It's just mm -hmm. there, it's pretty, we look at it, but we don't have to worry about it. Somebody yeah. is taking care of it. And I right. think what's happening now is that we're starting to realize that's not quite true, right? Those right. solutions that we developed in the 20th century are breaking. And, you know, you saw water flowing through the subway in New York City when Ida came through. That's an example of a, you know, engineering failure that then has profound social and economic consequences. And so part of the that's reason right. I wrote the book was to kind of try and unpack all of the ways in which we are related, socially related to water, because I think what's going to happen to us in the near future will demand 
you know, a new political engagement with this question of what do our cities look like? What does our sure. landscape look like? How much money should we be spending to control water and nature? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and there have been countless uh, kind of uh, these end of the world movies that have uh, that have been produced that water plays a really big role in that. Um, um, I, you know, I, I think probably a, a question that I want to ask um uh is fueled by that um where we have seen and heard so much about water shortage and i yeah. i know obviously that we're talking about fresh water in a lot of cases we're talking about fresh water um and and so um my question is more about so can you explain um, what it what it is that it, that prevents us from being able to utilize trans kind of transform water that is salt water into fresh water is that terribly expensive? Oh, right. Where where like right. where are we with that at this point? Since they're always talking about you know, for the greater part of my life, people have right. talked about water shortage. <laughs> where are we? Yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, drought is a physical and natural phenomena. Scarcity is entirely man-made, right? And so uh, the, the issue with that is that, of course, there are places in the world that are arid, uh, places that have, uh, you know, limited amounts of water. But the real question is typically, what do you imagine you're going to do with the water you have? And typically what happens is that um, people plan to do more than is possible. Right? And that's when you end up having scarcity. Like if you think of the worst of the United States as an example, yes, of course, there's a real problem with drought in California and across the Colorado. But part of the reason that's an issue is because people have planned for the southwest of the United States to look like Vermont, right? So everybody to have a green, to have vast agricultural productions across what is traditionally a very, very arid landscape. So in some ways, you know, the, the primary water scarcity is, is, a, is a man-made problem in that there's an inconsistency between our dreams for the landscape um, and what, uh, and what uh, you know, the environment can actually carry. Uh, you know, over the course of the 20th century, particularly the Bureau of Reclamation of the United States, promoted a sort of modernist idea that you could essentially always win. You could always develop enough infrastructure and always have enough sophistication in your agronomic practices that you could overcome essentially any uh, limit. But what we're seeing is that that's not quite true. And it's not quite true because, um, in truth, the resolving those issues by sheer technology would end up becoming just too expensive. Now, to your question about desalination and, you know, there's plenty of water in the world, you know, look at all those oceans. Why can't we just use that? The problem is simply economic. I'll give you mm. some, just, a, just a few numbers to kind of give you a sense of it. If you sure, sure. build infrastructure to draw water from a river, say the Colorado, the marginal cost of drawing the next cubic meter of water, a bathtub of water, let's say, right, is around two cents. So every bathtub of water that you use is around two cents. And we use a lot mm-hmm. of bathtubs of water, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking millions mm-hmm. of Right. Yeah. Now, to give you a sense of scale, if you were to desalinate the same amount of water, a bathtub of water out of a desalination plant, that at the plant costs you between $1 and $2. And then if wow. you, you know, the plants are typically on the coast, which means you have to then move them uphill. And, you, call, you know, of course, you know that a, a bathtub of water is a ton of water, is a, literally a ton of water. It's very mm-hmm. expensive. It's very mm-hmm. heavy. Right? And so mm-hmm. pumping it up yeah. 
uphill requires even more energy. And so what ends up happening is that, you know, by the time you get to the farm, if you're using desalinated water, you end up with, you know, water that costs you 100, 200 times what it would cost um, drawing it out of a river or of an mm-hmm. aquifer. Now, that's not mm-hmm. technically impossible. I mean, if you're growing, you know, very expensive salads with hydroponics, you don't need much water and you could use that kind of water. Mm-hmm. But, and, and indeed, in some places, they've gotten very, very efficient with water, right? So, for example, think of Jordan or think of, um, of uh, Israel. But, mm-hmm. but you can't grow alpha-alpha with desalinated water. You can't grow wheat with desalinated water at scale, what would happen would be that the cost of food would go up so much to recover the cost of water that it would be unaffordable and lots of people would go food insecure. So Uh, it's just an economic barrier that can't be be realistically overcome. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Those numbers are staggering when you you think about it. You know, I've... I've um, been a part of conversations, and I thank you for for giving me uh, some some ammunition, so to speak, um, to <laughs> to participate in those. But the question has come up, like like that this whole idea of water shortage is manufactured. It's you know it's not true, and and that all we have to do is get ocean water and desalinate. And I think now just hearing the economic impact of that makes makes it the point even clearer yeah. so thanks for sh- thanks for sharing and that for sure and and brian you know it, it, people sort of sometimes confuse different issues the bulk of the water that we use is for food production is agricultural water 98 percent of the consumptive use of water is for agriculture now there's a uh-huh. percent that's for industry and people and you know it's it's conceivable that a very wealthy city uh, might be able to afford desalinating water to use in its utility. But that doesn't, doesn't really address the water shortages that we're talking about. The Western United States is not dry. It doesn't suffer from scarcity just because there are cities. It suffers from scarcity because cities are competing with agricultural use. And so that's where this issue of water, desalinated water costing too much becomes, becomes salient. And then lastly, of course, the United States is a very rich country. This is not the solution for those countries in the world where people simply cannot afford to build even traditional infrastructure, let alone uh, desalination, which requires energy. Sure, sure. Thank you. Um, so I know we're running out of time, but I do have, um, you know, kind of a closing question for you. Um, so you are, you know, kind of globally recognized as an expert on water and um, have served as an advisor to uh, world leaders, um, and uh, I, I'm just curious, what's on the minds of people now, right now, global leaders, politicians, as it relates to water? What, what's really on people's minds about um, uh, addressing any number of, of these issues that come up around our use and water as a resource for us? Sure. Well, recently, in fact, uh, yesterday or the day before, the World Economic Forum um, issued its uh, annual global risks report, which is essentially a synthesis of that question asked of leaders from across the world. And at the top of that list is the concern with climate change. And I know that in the United States, this is a polarizing issue. But in truth, I read that as a concern with water phenomena. We are essentially facing the next 20, 30 years of high, of an increase in, in unpredictability. We're going to find ourselves with more floods, uh, more droughts, 
uh, more periods of aridity. Um, all of these are water phenomena. And the problem is that, you know, the, the planet has always had a variable distribution of water in the landscape and in time. That's not new. But over the last uh, two centuries, the industrial economy had built infrastructure and institutions to manage that and to essentially mm. insulate the productive economy, all those businesses that leaders are leading, to insulate those businesses from the variability of nature. And mm -hmm. the gravest concern is that those infrastructure and institutions that protected us are going to fail. Um, a bit like the subway in New York failed, a bit like Flint, Michigan failed, right? Mm -hmm. And if that happens mm -hmm. at scale, um, the consequences are severe disruptions from a social perspective and from an economic perspective. And mm -hmm. so the question is, well, then what do we do, right? And this is not just something that we can solve by you know, turning the top off every so often and brushing our teeth, uh, you know, fewer with, with less water and so forth. I mean, we have to do all those things. We have to conserve. But these are fundamental political questions. These are mm -hmm. questions that go to the heart of things like the infrastructure bills and the new deals that are being proposed all over the world. Is How does a country spend its money to help its population and its economy deal with a variable climate when that climate is is changing when that variability is becoming harsher that's at the mm -hmm. heart i think of everybody's concern and the poorer the nation the more vulnerable the nation the greater the concern and so particularly uh -huh. in the south of the world particularly in africa and asia this is a huge existential question mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely thank you thank you so much for sharing and i i've learned so much from talking to you this conversation has opened my eyes uh, a lot to some of the various issues and i'm looking forward to finishing um your book and for those of you who listening in and um want to get this book it's published by pantheon books it's water a biography and um the uh, the author is giulio boccoletti and um he has um certainly been um a, a eye opener for us uh today. Um so Julio, thank you so much. Uh and I I want you to enjoy your time. I know you're there visiting family. Uh so um thank you for taking time out of your 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 day to um to speak with me. Um wishing you great success. When you're back in New York, please give me a call. Uh let's get some tea or lunch or something. Love to sit down and and just chat with you, Absolutely. but we'll be, yeah, but we'll be listening and reading uh, your work well into the future. So until I see you in New York, go well, stay well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, it was a great pleasure, Brian.